Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, February the 12th, 2022. The show will be rebroadcast on Monday, February the 14th. 2022 from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 95th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show, we continue our mission to bring light to the volumes of evidence surrounding important issues for humanity that our mainstream media distort, omit, or otherwise misrepresent. Democracy demands the full vetting of all sides of all issues when it comes to foreign policy decision-making regarding war and conflict. Based on their own track record, our media and government should not be trusted without providing incontrovertible evidence for their assertions. We expect to be held to the same standard as we bring light into the darkness they have created. Tonight, we continue our investigative work around the U.S.-NATO-Ukraine-Russian conflict with special guest Scott Ritter. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer. He served over 20-plus years serving our country in the military, and he's famously known for his accurate portrayal of the absence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq as a UN inspector. His reports were ignored, and some one million Iraqis died. Today, and for many years, Scott Ritter continues to serve our nation in the highest regard through his investigative journalism. Stay tuned and enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. We come to you from Austin, Texas. Today is Friday, February the 11th, 2022. We'll be rebroadcasting this show this Monday, February the 14th, 2022, from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. First, before we go any further, I wanted to welcome the great honor of interviewing Scott Ritter to bring light into darkness. Scott, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Scott Ritter was born into a military family. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served over two decades, including reaching the rank of major. He did tours of duty in the former Soviet Union, implementing arms control agreements, serving on the staff of U.S. General Norman Schwarzkopf during the Gulf War, and later as a U.N. Chief Weapons Inspector with the U.N. in Iraq from 1991 to 1998. He forewarned the American public and anyone that would listen that the claims of weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq lacked merit. He became a critic of the United States foreign policy in the Middle East, 
He worked for a time as a news analyst for CNN and NBC television news. His areas of expertise include American foreign policy, national security, arms control, the Middle East, and he's written books. So it's a great honor to have you on the show. And I wanted to start off by suggesting that instead of focusing on the facts of what are national security interests of both the United States and Russia, it seems that our news coverage has been more on the politics of who Vladimir Putin is and not the long 20 years of his you know, immersement in bringing Russia from the brink of economic insolvency into a fairly solvent nation. But I was struck by some of the comments that you recently wrote about in your article on Putin. Published on February 2nd, 2022, entitled America's Putin Psychosis. And, and it reminded me of former director of national intelligence, James Clapper. He was consistently providing information to corroborate the narrative that Russia interfered with the 2016 elections. He pushed for an investigation into President Trump's ties with Russia, and critics questioned his reliability by citing his record of perjury during, and I'm talking about Clapper, during his congressional testimony in 2014, when he claimed that the NSA does not wittingly collect data on millions of Americans. Later, we, we found that to be uh, untrue based on Snowden's revelations. But during an interview with NBC's Chuck Todd in May 28th of 2017, Clapper said, if you put that in context with everything else, we knew the Russians were interfering with the election, he said. Which, by the way, was routinely alleged but never proven. In quote, he said, just the historical practice of the Russians who typically are almost genetically driven to co-opt, penetrate, game favor, whatever, which is typical Russian technique. So we were concerned. So this genetic, if you will, notion, I guess it's genetically driven xenophobic racism type of demonization of Russia that went completely unchallenged by Todd, reflecting the deep prejudice of our media, a deep prejudice that I would argue, is transmuted into the American public consciousness, one I experience from friends all the time when the subject is Putin. In other words, the American news focus is on Putin and Russia demonization. As opposed to really focusing on what are Russia's real concerns and, and what are the United States' real interests as well. So I guess with that introduction or framing of such, I just wanted to ask you to, to speak to what compelled you to write your piece on Putin and your history being close to the Russian perspective and the U.S. perspective. What is it that you think the U.S. listening public should know about the circumstances that seem to be taking us closer and closer to a major conflict? Well, the, the, the first thing is I have seen it over the course of time. The United States is continuously fighting these major issues on two fronts. And the most important of these fronts is the domestic front, meaning that politicians have to create a, a narrative, a perception of uh, American strength, American resolve in the face of adversaries who wish to do us harm. I mean, it's a black and white proposition where we're always right and they are always wrong. It's a zero-sum game. And so we, we tend to exaggerate threats and we tend to demonize the adversaries, turn them into cartoon-like figures. We, we saw this with Saddam Hussein's Iraq. 
nowadays, you know, we're, we're sitting on an entire archive of videotapes and, and such of, of Saddam Hussein's, you know, meetings, the, the inner meetings and, and stuff. And when you go through these, as I have, you see that uh, Saddam Hussein was a leader who took in advice. You know, he wasn't some idiot dictator who on a whim would decide to destroy a village here, execute people here, build a palace here, all on his own volition. He surrounded himself with advisors and he called upon these advisors for their advice. He demanded that they give it to him. And he would encourage debate and discussion and dialogue. I'm not saying that he was some benevolent uh, Harvard professor. I'm just saying that the cartoon-like figure that the, the U.S. government and then parroted by the U.S. media painted of Saddam Hussein is night and day from the reality. And uh, that same effort to, to frame a narrative in, in black and white terms, good versus evil terms, is it play today with Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia? One of the themes that we hear over and over again is that uh, he's an impulsive man. He's a gambler. Only Vladimir Putin knows what he's going to do next, as if one man sitting in the Kremlin has the ability to uh, exercise that kind of control over you know, a nation as large and complex as Russia. I mean, just the stupidity of the thinking that goes into that, the ignorance of, of, of what reality is. You know, even if Putin was a dictator, he wouldn't be able to do the things that the media and the U.S. government attach to him. And he's not a dictator. That's the other thing the American public needs to understand. When Saddam Hussein held elections, he tended to win the elections uh, at a rate of like 96 to 98 percent. That's how dictators win elections. Vladimir Putin wins by, uh, you know, 54 percent, 56 percent, 62 percent, maybe. These are the same level of, uh, of victories that American presidents have, because it's it's a reflection of the fact that Russia is a complex state, you know, where where there are differences of opinion, and when people go to the polls, they're just not lining up behind Vladimir Putin; they're lining up behind the candidates they support. So the the notion that Putin is a dictator, uh, you know, an autocrat, is just exaggerated in the extreme. Russia is a country that as I've indicated, is a huge country, huge landmass, um, you know, stretches over multiple time zones. And the way policy is made in, in Russia is from the bottom up. And what I mean by that is the top will maybe put out a theme. You know, we, we want to develop the Arctic. And then they push this down, this very extensive, sophisticated, well-educated bureaucracy. And the issue is studied in great detail by bureaucrats, uh, civil servants at the bottom of the food chain, who then push their, their work up, it gets reevaluated, push it up again, reevaluated, then at a certain level, it gets cross-pollinated uh, to other bureaucracies. For instance, the Department of Defense will coordinate with the oil industry about how best to uh, secure uh, energy resources in the Arctic. There will also be the, the natural resources people uh, and stuff. And, and at the end of the day, they, they come up with Papers that have considered every possible variable, every possible variation, every possible alternative, and they present these to Putin, who then sits down with his cabinet and they discuss the issue. And they come up with a consensus where, you know, that they present to the executive and the executive weighs down. The executive almost always goes with the consensus because it's not a whim. It's sound policy. So the idea that Vladimir Putin is waking up one morning saying, doggone it, I want to invade Ukraine, is an absurdity. <laughs> the, the Russians are acting today on a plan that's been years in the making. 
uh, because this is not an issue that just emerged overnight. I mean, we, you know, Vladimir Putin became president in late 1999. He took over from Boris Yeltsin. He undertook an election, I believe, the next year. And in 2001, he began to articulate his opposition to the expansion of NATO. In 2007, he famously spoke at the Munich Security Conference, where he laid it out in black and white mm-hmm. um, what he viewed to be the irresponsible activities, the ex- irresponsible expansion of NATO. Once again, in 2008, when NATO sought to bring in Ukraine and, and Georgia, uh, the Russian government said, this is a red line that we will oppose with violence if necessary. William Burns was the currently the CIA director today. He was the ambassador to Russia back at that time, and he wrote a detailed memorandum in February of 2009, which accurately portrayed the Russian point of view. And he said that the Russians have merit and we must give them consideration. And the Russians brought this up again in 2011 and 2012 and 2014 after Maidan revolution, when the CIA and the European intelligence services worked to oust through violent insurrection, a democratically elected president of Ukraine and replace them with a pro-Western neo-Nazi leaning government, you know, Putin responded. Now, this response is is different from what I talked about before, the the, the bottom-up approach. This response was an executive decision to, for instance, occupy Crimea and then annex Crimea. And Putin, because he's not a dictator, had to go forward and explain to the Russian people that because they've now brought Crimea in and this was not a planned for event, that the Russians now had to make sacrifices, tighten their belts as resources were diverted to assist Crimea. And they rapidly built this bridge and train connectivity connecting Crimea to the Russian mainland. They developed the infrastructure of Crimea. And today, Crimea is a thriving part of Russia. But my point is, nothing happens on a whim. Everything is linked to sound policy decisions that are a product of the Russian bureaucracy because they they consider Russian concerns, Russian national interests. When you speak of Russia today, you must speak of Russia, not Putin. Yes, Putin is the executive. But, you know, no American would say that Joe Biden is the United States. He's not. He's the president of the United States. Now, Vladimir Putin has been in the role of president for more than two decades now. And that's one of the reasons why he has an advantage over his American counterparts, because there is consistency of policy. Think about it. Vladimir Putin has been implementing the same policy for 22 years. During the time that he's been president of Russia, we've had William Jefferson Clinton. Then we had George W. Bush. Those are two totally different presidents with two totally different uh, policy uh, formulations and approaches. George W. Bush was replaced by Barack Obama. Again, a completely different president. So America's you know, seesawing back and forth between left and right. Then Donald Trump comes in and we get an even more extreme. And now we have Joe Biden, who's the complete opposite. So America's been jerked left, right, up, down, all around with no consistent policy. And Vladimir Putin's been in place implementing the same policy for 22 years. Yeah, that's what seems to me to be the framing of Putin. It distracts us from the real questions as to what is in the balance here. As you've written and you know well about that, there are real concerns that Russia has from a national security point of view. I think it's been pretty interesting how the propaganda of our government and our media have turned the whole thing into when is Russia going to invade 
rather than why are they at the border? Is it so much to invade or is it, according to some reports that I was reading out of Canada, that there was some half of the Ukraine's army, about 125,000 troops, are stationed near the border. And I, and, and I guess I'd like to ask to, for you to turn your attention a little bit to the who started it type of thing, where you have this huge buildup. I mean, you already mentioned the coup in 2014. We've talked on the show for the last number of weeks and over the last, well, actually since 2014, about the repressive neo-Nazi-led brigades that were in the East and that type of thing, you know, the the absolute terror of sorts. But what I'd like you to speak to is there's been reports that Russia is provokingly moved its troops to the border. My inclination is I'm seeing it more as they're doing it in response and the motivation to the threats from the Ukrainian forces in the east and the Donbass. Maybe you can speak to that, but also speak to what the main concerns that President Putin expressed in his diplomatic outreach of December, the middle of December, that still have not really been fully vetted by the American media. And instead, we've been focused on when is Russia going to invade type of thing. I mean, just the reframing of it is it just seems to be combined with what you were saying about the demonization of Putin. We demonize him so much that that becomes a story rather than really hard facts on the ground. And that when you look at these things geopolitically, there are real logical military, strategic, national security issues that are just not been fairly represented by our media. Can you speak first to that about the the Ukrainian forces and how the Russian forces are counteracting that and give us a better idea as to if it really was overt Russian aggression to move their troops to the border areas of their own country rather than to signal that Ukraine's army better not do X, Y, or Z in the east or else there's likely to be a very swift and powerful response. Well, first of all, we need to understand that while the Ukrainian military is is large, it's not very good. <laughs> I laugh every time I hear journalists in the West uh, talk about, you know, the Ukrainian military and how capable they are. I mean, I don't mean to be too flippant here, uh, but they're being trained by the same people who train the Afghan army. Thank Just, you. For that. I mean, they've been asking that question. You know, we saw what happened there with the Afghanistan 600,000 force or whatever. Folding in a matter of days. I've been told from doing a lot of the research that the strongest part of the Ukraine military is that 15 or 20 percent of those ultra right wing neo-Nazi led brigades and such. But then after that, who knows what's going to happen if there is a real conflict? Well, the right wing brigades, the Azov Brigade and others, well, they have, they're, they're equipped with fanatics. They're, they're not they're simply not trained well. I, I will tell you somebody who spent you know the, the best part of the 1980s training to carry out large-scale combined arms combat against the Soviet army. And I'm talking about battlefields that would have involved five, 600,000 Americans, you know, going up against, you know, over a million Soviets. Large-scale combat, combined arms combat, that's mechanized infantry, armor, artillery, aircraft, electronic warfare, the whole gamut together. That just doesn't happen. (laughs) You have to train for this extensively. I mean, I, I would spend 240 days a year in the field training, getting ready for this kind of combat. Fortunately, we never had to, had to do it because it would have been extraordinarily lethal. But I just laugh when I take a look at you know, the Ukrainians and, and the way they train, the way they operate. They are literally operating, if, if you want to call what the U.S. military was when I was in, in the 1980s, that we were 
graduate level, PhD level, you know, military operations. Ukrainians are third grade, fourth grade. I mean, they're just not good. They might be good, uh, you know, going up against these uh, separatists fighting in Donetsk and uh, Lugansk. But, you know, we have an example of what happens when the Ukrainians go up against the Russians. I think it was in 2015, a Ukrainian brigade trained to NATO standards, by the way. This was one of the few units that actually had been equipped, organized and trained to fight for NATO. Because keep in mind, Ukraine did send troops to both Iraq and Afghanistan as part of the NATO commitment, even though they weren't part of NATO. You know, they were pretending to be part of NATO. But these were well-trained troops, well-organized, well-led. And the Russians simply brought up artillery. And uh, within 15 minutes, they were completely destroyed, annihilated, done. Mm -hmm. And this was the best the Ukrainians had. And the Russians weren't even trying. And my point, is this Russian military buildup in response to Ukrainian troop movements? Absolutely not. Because the Russians don't need this level of buildup. This buildup is to catch the attention of the West. Let's make it clear that while the long-term provocation comes from NATO, what's happening right now is a crisis that Russia has decided to inflict on the West for the purpose of rolling back NATO. Russia's playing big stakes here. Russia's not playing for the margins. They're not looking for a compromise. They're looking for NATO to push back its expansion never to allow Ukraine in and to withdraw its military infrastructure back to 1997 levels. I'm pretty sure in the near future, Russia will be demanding a fourth term, which is to get every single piece of equipment that NATO has been flooding into Ukraine out. It's unacceptable. The Russian military force that's being assembled is a force that's capable of capturing the capital city of Kiev in two to three days and destroying the entirety of the uh, Ukrainian military in uh, you know, four or five days and occupying 70% of Ukraine within a week. That's what they're capable of doing. Now, do I think the Russians are going to do this? The answer is no. But no one would pay attention to Russia if they didn't assemble the military power capable of doing this. This is the only way they get the West to take them seriously. But Russia's playing a long-term game. One needs only look at the meeting between Putin and the Chinese President Xi on the February 4th at the Olympics, where they signed a joint statement of over 5,000 words, which is virtually a declaration of war against NATO in the West. Not military war, ideological war, political war, economic warfare. And they're deadly serious about this. They are taking on uh, the Biden agenda. You, you've heard this before, I believe, uh, the rules-based international order sort of a mantra of Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and Joe Biden. And Putin and Z came out and said, no, that's, that's a boys club. That's not the way the world works. What we're pursuing is the law-based international order. And the law we're talking about is the United Nations Charter, which takes prominence over everything. These guys are serious, and they're bringing in serious resources. And NATO, because Russia has exposed this, NATO has been exposed as fraudulent on two levels. One, military. They don't have the military capability to stand up to the Russians. NATO has allowed its military capabilities to degrade over the, the past 20 years to the point that what they have today is a shadow of what they used to have. Whereas Russia, because of NATO expansion around 2008, began reconfiguring, re-equipping, retraining its army for the sole purpose of defeating NATO on the battlefield. 
And uh, the Russian military today is top notch. NATO is a joke. So militarily, NATO has been exposed as a fraud. And you see that right now. You know, everybody talks about Article 5, the, the commitment to uh, to common defense. If one nation's attacked, all nations respond. That's not what it says. People need to read the charter. Article 5 says that if one nation's attacked, other nations may respond, not necessarily militarily, and only within the capacity they're comfortable with. <laughs> and so right now, a lot of Europe is taking a look at uh, the disparity of power, and they're opting out. We saw Croatia opt out. Bulgaria's opting out. Turkey's going to opt out. Germany is opting out. Uh, they don't want to be part of this nonsense. Hey, Scott, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. Uh, we wanted to remind folks that this is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is your community radio station. Our membership drive will be starting later this month and will be extending for a short period of time into the 1st of March. So save your nickels and dimes and we will be right back with our very special guest, retired military major Scott Ritter and former UN inspector right after this brief pause for the cough. Don't touch that dial. 